This is Fluid Truth, and I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas. We explore a simple question of whether there is equity in the justice system. The content offered in this segment is personal reflection and interpretation. The views of my guests are not necessarily the views of Fluid Truth or Quinnipiac University. For clarity, this conversation has been edited. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Heron Gaston as my guest today. Among many things, Dr. Gaston is the senior pastor of Summerfield United Methodist Church, the assistant chief administrative officer for the city of Bridgeport, the chaplain for the Bridgeport Police Department, and a student at Quinnipiac Law School. We sat down to discuss his experiences, as well as how our present scenarios are informed with historical context. It was really great to have him here with us at Fluid Truth. Good afternoon. This is Fluid Truth. I'm attorney Shirley Skyers Thomas, and my guest today is Dr. Heron Gaston. Welcome, Dr. Gaston. I'm glad you came. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we jump in, I would just want to get a good sense of who you are so you can share with whomever is listening who you are and how you come to this work. Okay, good stuff. So my name is Dr. Heron Gaston. I am the senior pastor of the Summerfield United Methodist Church uh, in the city of Bridgeport. Uh, and I also hold the title of Assistant Chief Administrative Officer for the city as well. Uh, I also uh, serve as the chaplain for the Bridgeport Police Department. Uh, and formerly, uh, I uh, worked at Yale Divinity School as the Associate Director of Admissions, Recruitment, and Financial Aid. Uh, and originally, I'm from Florida uh, and a transplant to the Northeast and love it up here so much just having returned back home. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. We'll take it. Transplants are very, very welcome. And you know the weather conditions here, and you're still willing to stay. Oh, absolutely. I know the weather conditions. I've been here 12 years now. So every year I'm like, I'm going home during the winter, <laughs> and I'm, I find myself still here. So I love it. So it's something more than weather. Absolutely. I'll take it. Um, and also, before we even jump in, you have embarked on yet another career um, accolade and change for you. Tell us about you jumping back into school. Oh yeah, so uh, I've pretty much been in school all of my life. Uh, I uh, have a bachelor's degree in political science, pre-law studies, I have a master of political science, uh, public administration, a master of divinity, a master of sacred theology, a doctorate in uh, psychology and counseling around ministry from Andover Newton Theological School and the other degrees coming from Yale. I'm also a student at Quinnipiac University School of Law and in my last year, so well, it's exciting. Right. Well, all right. Congratulations on your last year. Uh, and hopefully the last degree that I'll ever work on in my entire life. You say that now. But having <laughs> listed all those degrees, I'm not certain that that's going to be the case. Well, I got more degrees than a thermometer. I think I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on this. Thank you. I so why it. did you want to jump into law? Yeah, so um, one of the things that really drove me into law is I think that there is a disparity that exists within our uh current criminal justice system, and I like to call it our uh, uh, current uh, criminal legal system, uh, because I think that when you look at the criminal justice system as a whole within the United States context, you see just us. And what I mean by that is mostly represented by black and brown folks, but overwhelmingly black men. And I think that uh, we have more individuals in community control or the criminal justice system today than we had in 1850. And so I think that the conversation is ripe to be had, especially now considering critical race theory and all these other concepts is coming on the table uh, to really address uh, the issue of how the 
modern-day criminal justice system serves as a browning magnet. And I think that it's doing precisely what it was designed to do. Uh, and we have to know the history of how police departments were started and formed. Uh, we have to understand how uh, the criminal justice system uh, began to swell and the reasons why it began to swell in our country and why certain individuals and certain groups are more uh, inclined uh, to be snatched by our criminal justice system. And I think that has a lot to do with the race-based policies uh, that have been created. And just uh, case in point, during the Reagan administration, uh, talking about making America great again, which was a mantra that we heard more recently with Donald Trump, uh, and helping to really supersize our prisons uh, and uh, targeting and surveillancing poor communities of color, uh, which therefore uh, have given rise to the overrepresentation of black and brown people in the system. And so I became um, uh, just passionate about that after having worked for um, folks on Capitol Hill. Uh, I did an internship with uh, the late, great John Lewis, uh, who really talked about getting into good trouble. And that stuck with me. I think that every community, uh, as Bayard Rustin would say, needs an angelic troublemaker, somebody to uh, lift these salient issues up and speak truth to power uh, in a way to help dismantle uh, these kinds of systems that uh, far too often um, uh, are debilitating uh, to our communities and its flourishing. You've, had, you've said a mouthful, and it doesn't even require any digesting because I definitely see, what, see where you're coming from with mm -hmm. that, and I echo your sentiments. Um, I'm really interested in, now we talk about equity in the justice system, and you've already led into that conversation. You've jumped in um, with both feet, and I appreciate that. And you have some lived experience that really informed that. So can you talk to me a little bit about, now you've already put on the table why you're interested mm -hmm. in, in this type of work and why you're back in almost the conclusion of law school because of this type of work. Sure. What has informed that? Yeah, so um, as I said, I think, um, you know, statistics don't lie, but liars do statistics. And I mean, I have seen an over-exaggeration of numbers, but I also have been uh, a, a part of that numbering uh, statistics uh, that have been named. And we know that one in three African-American males uh, within their lifetime will be arrested. Uh, one in six uh, Latino Latinos uh, will be arrested in their lifetime. One in 14 whites. Uh, will be arrested in their lifetime. But nonetheless, um, I uh, uh, had my own personal experience uh, with law enforcement. It does not matter where you come from, what you look like, your socioeconomic background, um, you know, uh, how you look ontologically. If you are a person with a darker hue, uh, you are receptive to falling into that statistical category of being arrested and therefore then being labeled um, either a felon or persons with whom uh, society should fear. And so in 2010, um, I was falsely accused of a crime in Tampa, Florida, after having worked uh, at a summer youth camp uh, in Tampa uh, just before the start of my matriculation at Yale uh, University. And um, on October the uh, 5th, I had received a call from uh, the uh, police department from the University of South Florida informing me about uh, the allegations. Uh, I responded and said I unequivocally denied the allegations, uh, and so therefore the police department said that they would, you know, stop their uh, investigation. They were just following up, 
and they had no ironclad proof of anything happening outside of just a testimonial uh, from one of the students. And so what ended up happening is on November the 4th, uh, 2010, after having been reassured by attorneys in Florida, uh, Benjamin Crump, who was working on the case, as well as Daryl Parks, uh, let me know, hey, there's nothing for you to worry about, continue going to class as normal. And I remember um, vividly on November the 4th, 2010, uh, five United States Marshals accompanied by um, dozens of Yale uh, police officers uh, came inside of the classroom and arrested me uh, in front of my uh, peers. And I was uh, made to feel extremely intimidated with shackles on my legs and shackles uh, on my feet. And um, following that experience, after having gotten into the police car, uh, we then drove to the New Haven um, uh, courthouse where they were going to go and get the warrant. Uh, and while I was inside of the custody of the car with the officers, uh, they were saying things to me like, you know, why would you spoil, you know, an opportunity to come to Yale? Like, why did your ass do that? You know, we're going to send you uh, back to Florida so you can answer to those charges. And, you know, it's no surprise that we're coming to pick up a black male uh, from Yale University. And they were saying all kind of, um, you know, insulting things to me at that time. And I just uh, allowed that to sort of germinate but didn't internalize it fully, but said that I'm going to fight like hell, you know, to ensure my innocence. And I'm going to come out of this and I'm going to have a righteous vengeance as it relates to the criminal justice system and as it relates to representing people who look like me, who find themselves falling in that situation. So all too often I have experienced the ease with which young black men, particularly who look like me, fall in the crushing yoke of injustice by an inherently prejudicial, racist, and flawed uh, criminal justice system. And I think that, you know, those folks who are closest to the problem are often closest to the solution. And because of my lived experience, you can debate me about theology, you can debate me about mass incarceration, you can debate me about LGBTQ issues, you can debate me about a wide range of social conundrums within society. But what you cannot debate me about is what it means to live, to breathe, to walk in my blackness. And what does it mean to experience uh, the hellish hounds of what we experience as black persons, but particularly black men in our society. So because of that, I think that I bring a level of authenticity to the conversation uh, and uh, a, a sense of, of, of raw emotional material that I think uh, can help pull at the heartstrings of individuals that make their ears a bit more palpable uh, to see not just my humanity, but to see the struggle and how do they enter into that struggle to help liberate other persons uh, that may have the same kind of experience that I have. So in follow-up to that, I wonder if you see the um, environment of criminal justice in, a, in a, a way that makes you angry. Do you get angry when you think about what even particularly happened to you and the state of criminal justice right now and the state of, of those being incarcerated right now and the state of those who are being accused of things, <clears throat> even falsely accused, mm -hmm. of various you know, types of um, events and, uh, and uh, I can't even think of a word right now accused of other things. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think that the things that actually, um, that pain us, uh, the things that are the things that drive us and move us often to um, helping to create viable solutions for other people because uh, we feel it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's one thing to uh, theorize about something. It's another thing to actually feel it and experience it. And um, I 
uh, have a righteous uh, anger uh, because I also realize that we as human beings are flawed. I do understand that these systems um, were created many, many years ago, and those systems are continuing to operate in the way in which they were designed to operate, but we're starting to bring more attention to these things, and I think that it's not just the job of, of white people to untangle this system that we find ourselves in, but I think that we also need other groups of individuals to come alongside uh, to help create some of the solutions. Uh, we are at a defining moment, I think, uh, in America, where for the first time in a long time that we're beginning to actually engage with these issues in a real way. And I think that uh, we've been extremely weak-wheeled on the issue of race, which is one of the reasons that we keep finding ourselves here over and over and over again. And uh, this race issue has been like a cancer, and it has metastasized. I mean, it affects every area of your life, every area of your being. So yes, I am angry. Uh, yes, that's what uh, uh, motivates me to get up every single day and to hit the ground running because I know that there are so many people out there who look like me who uh, voices may not necessarily be heard in the same way as mine because there is a level of status and, uh, that comes along with education. We know that education is the bridge to the future, the cornerstone by which our success so heavily depends upon, and it helps us to give us uh, rhetorical skills that uh, oftentimes uh, white folks are looking to hear. And so I think about my role in this struggle as being very uh, um, much like the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the 1960s uh, when he was sent to uh, Birmingham, Alabama and Montgomery to lead the bus boycotts and what have you. Uh, he was not really the preferred person but because the ministers and preachers couldn't get along with each other they found themselves having to go for the person who was the newbie in town and it happened to be Dr. King. And because he was from a middle class background having been educated at Morehouse College and coming from at least a generation or two of folks who were educated, white people began to hear Dr. King differently around issues of civil rights, and I think that's what helped to give rise to the success of the civil rights movement, is that he was able to co-opt others into the movement to fight for liberation. And so what I do is I use my education, my access uh, to these various networks to speak truth to power in a way that those who are sitting in the seat of power can hear it and then therefore help to uh, massage some of these policies to become much more just and equitable and fair. And I'm not suggesting that's going to be done in one fell swoop, but it's happening incrementally in the spaces and places uh, that I'm in. And so um, I uh, am excited to be here today to even have that discussion so that we can continue to uh, make progress. And I agree with you on the issue of progress. And I was thinking as you were talking, I was like, wow, this really kind of speaks to me on in the wake of 2020. And 2020 did not start anything. It did not conclude anything. Mm -hmm. It was just highlighted and illuminated. Right. 2020 was, you know, sometimes I would consider it when our country opened their eyes in mm -hmm. some aspects, right? Mm -hmm. So in the wake of 2020, we have these issues that are put in front of us, and sometimes people are seeing it for the first time. Mm -hmm. In some instances, they're reckoning with it for the first time. It can be very overwhelming, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter to me if we're talking about different race or gender or ethnicity. It could be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So how are you looking at an issue such as this? It's a big issue. Like you said, it infiltrates every aspect mm -hmm. of our, our lives and our society and our culture. It infiltrates mm -hmm. all of it. How do you kind of break this down so it's not an overwhelming beast that we have to kind of get to the top and kill? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, this issue is 
you know, like peeling an onion. I mean, the deeper and deeper you dig, the stinkier and messier it gets, the more multi-layered it is. But I also think that it's important to throw all the things out there, throw the kitchen sink out there about the things that really are impacting our lives in a way for all of us to be able to grapple with that, to see the weight of these things and how it helps to uh, push in on us and it does not help to promote human flourishing and to build relationships. And one of the things that I think that COVID has been able to do uh, is help us to reimagine, you know, and to be much more creative, uh, whether that's in the workplace, whether that is the way that we engage with others, the way in which we um, have time to sit down, ruminate, to meditate and to think. Uh, I know that for me personally, it has been overwhelming dealing with COVID, but I think that COVID has also helped to pull out to the fore a lot of these inequities because we can see it, we can feel it. Once again, the African-American community and the Latino community is hard as hit you know, by uh, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And we see the healthcare disparities at an all time high, and we're seeing educational disparity, poverty. Um, so these are things that I think that folks could put their rose petal glasses on before. But now when you have to actually sit in it, it does not feel comfortable, it does not feel good, and it's pushing us outside of our comfortability. And uh, we have more time uh, to think. And so hopefully with that thinking and processing, uh, we can actually come up with some creative solutions that we were not quite able to do before. And what is your hope for your creativity? As we're speaking, I have a copy of your book that I'm going to be jumping into. Um, and you have some other creative efforts that you have penned and that you have put in front of, you know, front of the masses for mm -hmm. consumption. So what is, what's your hope for these creative ventures? Uh, my hope is that uh, we come to a place of, uh, of acknowledgement of these issues, uh, affirming the lived experience of those whose backs have been against the wall for decades upon decades, and how racism has um, really um, pulled away from people being able to become real productive members of our societies because of the grave impediments that exist with certain groups because of racism. So first, the acknowledgement. Then I think that there needs to be a sincere apology. Uh, it's one thing for me to injure you and to do something to you and step on your toes and then turn around and just say, okay, we're friends tomorrow. No, because the pain of me stepping on your toes, it hurt. The pain of me stepping on your toes allowed you a lot of time to think through how that impacted you that I may not be necessarily aware. But it's a different if I come to you and say, I am so sorry you know, for having stepped on your toes and I would ensure that that doesn't happen again. How do we make sure we don't get back to this situation where I cause you injury? And then allow you to also share with me what I could be doing. And so I think that's what needs to happen. Now there needs to be not just the acknowledgement, the apology that's sincere, and then actionable steps to cure the defect. And um, what I would like to see is reparations for black people. Uh, and I don't know any other group of individuals that have come to the American soil against their will that, were, that was kidnapped, brought here, uh, gave their time, their talent, their service, their gifts, their sweat equity, their blood, and fertilized and impregnated the soil of the United States, but yet are always the ones on the back burner when it comes to any kind of programs or any kind of uh, uh, financial support to help bring the African-American community up to where it needs to be. There's a lot of emotional injury mm -hmm. that have been done. We need to address it. 
more so now than ever, we're starting to talk about mental health. And one of the things that brought up mental health is white boys or white men going into schools and shooting up schools. And then we started saying, oh, there's a mental health concern. And so if we can talk about that being a mental health concern, what about the post-traumatic stress syndrome of slavery and slavocracy and Jim Crow and lynchings and the shootings of unarmed black men and women in our communities? Mental health has been on the table for us for a long time. But our mental health issues have been categorized in, in, in a punitive way, and, and, and we've criminalized it instead of dealing with it. And I think that when we look at our criminal justice system, instead of criminalizing people and penalizing them for certain kinds of uh, things, we need to not criminalize mental illness and criminalize uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome from uh, what slavery has caused, and we need to treat it and move to a treatment model. And I think we're starting to have those conversations, uh, but not necessarily in the vein of criminal justice. But I'm hoping that that can be transferable and be a conversation uh, uh, for that. I think it will be a game changer for the way in which we uh, deconstruct uh, and sort of rebuild anew uh, our, our criminal legal system in this country. And you brought up this great um, point about this intersection between mental health and criminal justice mm -hmm. and how it really informs the behaviors. And I know you didn't even speak on this in a way that I know that you would, but mm -hmm. the idea of mass incarceration as, you know, having um, come through this legacy of unfortunately the enslaved and Jim Crow and all the way to mass Absolutely. incarceration, which we're still experiencing right now mm -hmm. and what that looks like and feels like. And you've written about that. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that writing to to kind of give us more of an understanding of how you see this. Right. Well, absolutely. I mean, I when I was writing that book, I mean, it was a lot of raw emotional material that I was dealing with and trying to process within my own experience, but also just, you know, trying to situate this in a historical context. You know, if you don't know your history, you don't know your past. If you don't know your past, you don't know your present. You don't know your present. You don't know your future. And you can't be present to the realities of the future if you're not willing to be present and engaged in helping to really see this from a lens of uh, a historical account. So when we look at uh, the way in which our police departments were formed, the way in which our criminal justice system was formed, it was actually um, started out uh, uh, addressing uh, slave patrols, right. you know, and right. keeping uh, the slaves on the plantation and um, highly surveillancing them and keeping them in one area. Uh, and we can see uh, throughout the generations of how uh, even Jim Crow uh, laws that were um, that were really targeted against uh, specific groups of people, particularly black people and particularly black men. Then we can also see, you know, past the 1960s into the 1970s, you see, you know, race-based policies that also impact um, black and brown folks. We start seeing the uh, targeting of, of drugs uh, and uh, the concentration of drugs. I mean, we didn't have access as black people to the drugs. I mean, we didn't have access to the ships and the boats and the yachts and the airplanes. Clearly, they were brought there and helped to decimate uh, the black community. And we helped to create the projects. We helped to create uh, all of those conditions about um, you know uh, inequities in housing. Uh, that is something that's been created and manifested from the time of slavery into Jim Crow, uh, and then now what I like to call Jim Crow Jr. 
that racism hasn't changed that much. It's just put on different outfits uh, throughout different generations and different times. And so I think that the eyes of the future are looking back at us and they're praying that we can see beyond our own time. And I remember my grandmother always saying, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And so we have a reciprocal responsibility to allow others to stand on us. And I think that what we're seeing right now in our society, and I'm not suggesting that people are not fighting in new and creative ways, but I think that we need to get our asses off of the shoulders of our ancestors and stand on our own two feet Mm. and allow others to be able to stand on us because we need to be able to not only speak out, but we need to be um, able to um, do that in a way that's unflinchingly uh, and and not afraid. Uh, And I think it takes courage in order to be able to do that. Uh, And so uh, my uh, role is to fight for all people, to fight for uh, justice and inclusion. But I have a uh, particularity in terms of who I'm fighting for. And I want to be unequivocally clear that I fight for black people every single day because I think that if black people are not freed and we can't get our foot off of the neck of black people, we can forget trying to help anyone else. And so what's going on right now is black people are under the gun. Our house is on fire. And it's just, you know, folks are saying all lives matter. Yes, all lives do matter, but all lives cannot matter until black lives matter. You know, if there's a house on your block that's on fire and you call the fire station and they send the fire truck, it does not make any kind of rational sense to me that the fire truck will be on the block over from your house that's burning down and spraying that house with water. It needs to come to the house that's on fire and extinguish that fire. Then we can talk about the other houses in proximity to that house. But right now, the issue is black folks are burning and they've been burning for a very, very long time. How do we extinguish that and get our foot off of the neck of black people in all spheres of the human endeavor? That's a beautiful point, and I love the, the way that you brought the historical context, and I think that makes so much of a difference when you look at it in a larger context. This didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. This isn't a 2021 issue. This is right. actually a 2020 issue. We need to look back a couple generations and a couple hundred years mm-hmm. to see what has been this context and has been the narrative of black people in this country. So now at this point where we're looking at, we have this historical context and then we have present day. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is in this conundrum because there's all these ideas to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. What would be your suggestion to um, the the broader good and and those making um, the, the, those who are at the helm to be able to make change and those who are able to you know, call the shots and be able to orchestrate legislation Mm -hmm. and those who are able to enforce such legislation. Mm -hmm. What would be your suggestion at this point? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, think that, you know, I love the beauty of this country and that America is not, you know, like many folks say, is a melting pot. I like to say that America is not a melting pot but a salad bowl. Uh, And each of us have our own special ingredients by which we are able to contribute to this salad. And with such diversity, I think, brings in a cacophony of different voices, different experiences, different perspectives. And we're starting to see those perspectives being represented in, in, in quite a few spaces that they were not uh, been seen in uh, before. We are electing uh, persons uh, to public office in, in numbers that we have not uh, elected them before. White towns are electing uh, black mayors and Hispanic mayors and Asian mayors all across this country. 
uh, we're starting to see a little bit of a change. And we know that politics is the process by which we choose our elected officials and we hold them accountable to the constituents that they represent. And what we see is that um, more people are starting to do that. And so with the more voices at the table, I think that um, uh, uh, representation is policy. So when you have folks at the table who have certain kind of perspectives and lived experiences, they're able to help shape and change public policy. And you may not necessarily see it on a gigantic or a massive scale initially, but incrementally over time, if these things start changing, uh, we start changing out our police chiefs and we start to move more towards okay. community-based policing, which we're starting to hear more conversation around, I think that we're going to start really seeing the relationships improve on the ground uh, between the African-American community, the Latino community, and the police. Um, and we're starting to see some of those changes happening, and it gives me hope. Uh, that we will continue in that vein uh, in the future, especially considering that we know uh, that by 2050 there'll be no set race that dominates the other. Um, you know, uh, white folks are already becoming uh, the minority as uh, the uh, majority populations begin to grow uh, in terms of numbers, with the African American community uh, being at 12.9 percent, the Hispanic community being about 17.5 percent, the Asian community is well past 8.5 percent in the United States, uh, and other groups of persons that uh, consider themselves to be non-white. So we are seeing uh, a change in the demographics. Uh, and with that change in the demographics, we're seeing a change in terms of ideology. Uh, and with ideology, uh, we're seeing uh, the changes uh, in public policy. So I'm hoping that uh, our Congress uh, could recognize um, the, the, where we're going, um, see uh, the current challenges that's in front of us, and really uh, move the needle on helping to make more social progress and breaking in on these uh, entrenched systems and dismantling them where we can uh, and making addendums and adjustments. So I, I have hope uh, that, that that's going to happen. Next 10 years we'll be in a different kind of world uh, that our kids will experience than what we, uh, that we're currently experiencing. I love that we can kind of put a pause at the point of hope. Mm. My personal opinion is that there are so many issues that are around us, and you've illuminated so many of them, and you've highlighted for those who are listening so many of them. But we can't stay there in this point of anger. I know we mm -hmm. mentioned anger before, and I've said this before. We don't stay in anger mm -hmm. unless this anger is propelling us to action. Right. So we have to move to action, and from action there is hope for mm -hmm. the change. So I love that. So before we wrap up with each other today, can you tell me about a little bit of what you're writing? So if we want to hear more from you mm -hmm. and more of your opinions and more of your perspectives, tell us about what you're writing, please. Yeah, so uh, I am writing, um, uh, my next book is called uh, Let's Talk Race, uh, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And um, I thought that this would, was the time that was ripe for that kind of book and for that kind of discussion as we uh, are trying to figure out ways in various organizations, institutions all around uh, the country on how to be more equitable, how to be more fair, how to um, you know, redistribute the wealth in a way that uh, is, is equitable to all people. And I think in order to be able to do that, um, you know, people need tools, uh, people need resources. There are people who have good hearts, good intentions. I believe that most folks are good people and most folks want to see the common good happen. Uh, but may not necessarily know how to get there. And I think it's important in this moment uh, that we give folks as many tools as possible uh, to try to implement um, so that they could see success in their organizations, in their lives, um, 
And uh, I, I would like to start uh, with uh, training municipalities uh, and um, entering into the academic guild because I think that, um, you know, uh, academia usually uh, help to um, cultivate thought leaders and people who are um, ideologically supposed to be progressive in their thinking and maybe a little bit more open uh, to uh, uh, experiencing radical change that therefore we might be able to see infiltrated uh, within other spheres uh, and organizations in our society. So those are the two places that I'm going to start. Um, you know, it may not make uh, a change across the country, but it will make a ripple effect. I'm just trying to create uh, a stream in the river uh, that other people can jump in alongside me and do their part because I think that um, all of us um, have a duty, a moral responsibility, an obligation mm -hmm. uh, to um, help impact uh, change. Again, you know, there's a saying that, um, uh, you know, um, there is, uh, for all of us, th th there's a job, there's something that we are designed, that we're purposed and we're created to do, and that uh, change is also the rent that we pay for the space in which we occupy. So we should be good change agents uh, for other people. And I would like to think that most folks um, um, would probably live into that. I love that, and considering that it cannot be a one-person endeavor. Mm -hmm. We can start as an individual, but change is not made as one person. We have a collective. Right. And I love that you're going to be this ripple effect. You already are considering your writings and your speaking mm -hmm. and your, your roles in both the city and in the state. But this opportunity to bring other people who are like-minded right. and give them tools. Yes. Look at that. I love that. Yes. Giving them, giving them tools that they need to help effectuate the kind of change that they wish to see. And um, it's not just giving uh, people tools, but giving people also language. Mm. Um, uh, to use that that becomes a little bit more um, again palpable uh, for others to hear and I think that um, you know people can stomach to take a hard word from you uh, when they know that it's coming from you know a good place True. and uh, when you are using communication and dialogue as a skill for conflict resolution around many of these issues that probably um, folks have very strong views and opinions about and uh, whether you're able to change or persuade their opinion uh, otherwise, that's one thing. But I think that when people can hear it from individuals that they have garnered a level of respect for, they may disagree with some of the approaches of getting there. But if you're able to help them to see how it benefits not only them, but it benefits the society, it benefits you, it benefits their kids, their grandkids, and those that come behind them, I think that they will get on board. And most people like to be a part of a success story. And no one really wants to be seen as persons who are holding people down. Uh, right. They, they, they want to be a part of something that they feel that they could be um, um, in a co working in tandem with others who are trying to push things right. forward. Right. And now with the internet and with uh, media, uh, we have an opportunity to really spotlight people and to you know, point the finger. And sometimes it's good uh, to point the finger and say, hey, you know, you're, you're not on board with this issue, why? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and put people on the carpet so that others around can see. And then you leverage the power and impact that you have from those other folks that are pushing for this and the louder voices will always win. Very true, very true. So to be able to inform the voices, add resources to the voices, open up the conversation, I think that's the path forward. Sure. 
I love this. Thank you so much. I'm going to pause this here because we could just go on and talk and kind of dig into deeper issues <laughs> and go and expand, and, and expand this conversation. But let's put a pause right here. Thank you so much, Dr. Gaston, for being here with us. No, thank you so very much for having me. This is, has been an enjoyable experience. My pleasure. Thanks for listening in today. Special thanks to our producer, Johnny Marquat, and executive producer, David DeRoche. Shout out and big thanks to the Fluid Truth crew for their assistance. That's Jackie Callanan, Raynette Shafu, and Jake McCarthy. Music is provided by Audio Hero from their Jazz Lounge album. To learn more about all of our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. You can listen to all of our podcasts on the platform or app of your choice. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at QUPodcast. If you have a story to share or something you want to talk about, find us on social media or shoot us an email. The address is qupodcast at qu.edu. On the next show, I'll be sitting down with attorney Sonia Worrell-Assad. All right, that's it for today. Till next time.